0: Looking for a new podcast for your morning commute? Check out Least of These, a weekly true crime podcast covering cases you won't find in the headlines. Every Thursday, host Leah D. takes a deep dive into those lesser-known cases, highlighting victims who haven't gotten the media coverage their cases deserve. I just finished episode 86, The Murder of Steve Lohman. Christopher Scarver is most known for being the inmate that murdered Jeffrey Dahmer. And while he is hailed as a vigilante hero by some, the horrific murder of Steve Lohman is what landed him in Columbia Correctional alongside Dahmer. And Steve's story deserves to be heard and remembered. So listen now.
1: Least of These is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. This episode may contain content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody, and welcome back.
0: I'm Nikki. And I'm Mariah. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body to Burial. So Nikki, I know you kind of pinged me before we got started today, and you said that you had an announcement. So I will
1: give you the mic. Yes. Well, we would like to welcome Jody to the Coroner's Group. She just joined our Patreon. Hey, Jody. Thank you. Amazing. Welcome. That's so exciting. I'm so.
0: Again, thank you to everybody who's been joining the group and showing up. Like, I know I speak for Nikki and I both when we say we really appreciate you and we appreciate the the support and the encouragement.
1: Exactly. Thank you so much.
0: Okay. This is like my, what is that saying? Like your whale, like your Moby Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what
1: I'm talking about? <laughs> your white whale. Yeah. I've Yeah. <laughs> You're tracking me. Yeah. I've heard that. <laughs> okay
0: so today's guest is like my whale. Okay. And I'm super excited because before you and I even like started this idea of a podcast I had read a book that I like powered through. I read it in like two days and I was like obsessed with it and I literally kept trying to like talk to Will about the book and like the stories in the book and you know Will's like grossed out by anything like slightly graphic and so he'd be like oh you know stop telling me these things and I was like oh, I it just it's so good uh-huh. um so the I book I, I read I was called Working Stiff two years 262 bodies and the making of a medical examiner and the author of that book is Judy who is a forensic pathologist okay and Judy
1: author of said book Is our guest today. Oh, I had a feeling that when you said book and you read it, I'm like, oh, this has to be who she always talks about her book. She's so hyped on her that it has to be her. Oh,
0: I am Judy's hype girl all the way, like 100 percent. Yeah. Like I am so excited to sit down with her and so honored that she agreed to come on our show. Totally. But literally just like so, so. This is like my Britney Spears. Let's just be
1: real. <laughs> nice. I'm excited. I'm yeah. I bought a yeah. book because you told me how much you love it. So I have her book, too. I'm only on chapter two, but I'm loving Kay. it so far. She's yes. fantastic.
0: Yeah. Her stories are amazing. The way that she writes is, like, such an easy, like, relatable read. Like, it sounds like you're just talking to a girlfriend. Exactly. I I love it. I love her. Love her books. Love her stories. So she's going to come talk to us today about pathology, what it means, what she does, and all that good stuff. And can we just bring her on? Because I just can't wait anymore. I know. You've got to be dying inside. I'm literally (laughs) dying. It's like
1: Christmas morning. (laughs) Well, I'm excited and I'm more excited for you and I'm, and I am very excited for her too, to hear her, but I am excited for you that you get to meet your, um, your Britney Spears. I'm pumped.
0: Right. Okay. I'm not going to wait any longer. So let's just like jump to it. Let's bring okay. her in.
2: Perfect. Hello.
0: Hey, Judy.
2: Hey, how are you doing? I'm
0: great. How are you? I'm good. Well, perfect. I am going to do my very best. I was preparing Nikki. I said I'm going to try not to fangirl over you because I am so excited and so honored that you agreed to chat with us. And I loved your book so much. So I'm going to try to contain myself and be as professional as I can. And not let, you know, not let your stardom, you know, get to me. I I really
2: am just a regular person. (laughs)
0: Well, well, that's just like such a celebrity thing to say. I'm just one of you, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Your book talks about being a medical examiner. And I know you're a pathologist. I guess to clear up for our listeners, are those interchangeable terms? Or did you start as a medical examiner and then you do additional training and now you're a pathologist? I guess
2: to answer your question, I need to define... The differences between forensic pathologist, medical examiner, and I also have to add one more term <laughs> is quorum. so forensic pathologist is a doctor, so you have to have a medical degree, and that doctor is trained in doing death investigation. So usually they're first a pathologist, meaning that they know how to look at organs and tissues and make diagnoses based on that using a microscope. But then they also are trained in doing autopsies, which is cutting up dead bodies to try to figure out why people die. And then you have to do an additional year of training at the minimum one year in the United States. So different systems may have other requirements, depending on where in the world you are. But you need to do additional training to become a forensic pathologist where you perform autopsies primarily in cases that have legal questions. So specifically when the deaths are sudden, violent, or unexpected. And that's the definition of what a forensic pathologist is, the doctor who's trained in death investigation. So then there's the difference between a medical examiner and a coroner. If a forensic pathologist runs the death investigation system in a particular region, whether it's a county or state, depending on the region, If the the person in charge is a doctor and is trained in forensic death investigation, then that's a medical examiner system. The system is set up where a doctor's in charge. And if the system has been set up based on a different model, one in which the person who's in charge, who's making the determination of cause and manner of death, being someone who's not a doctor, typically it's a person who in the United States they may run for office. So it could be an elected position, an elected lay coroner, or it could be an administrator, someone who's in administrative level of government and they're assigned that task. Or it could even be the sheriff. The county sheriff could also have the task of being the coroner. Um, This is in the American model. And so those coroners will have forensic pathologists working for them, and the forensic pathologist will do the autopsy but the decision of what the cause and the manner of death is is up to the coroner, not up to the pathologist. The pathologist can weigh in on that, and most of the time the coroners will take what the pathologist says, but sometimes they might not, or they might hire somebody else and get a second opinion or a third opinion and go with that. Uh, So it's a different system, and it comes from the British system, the coronial system. It comes from the word crown, from the British system.
0: That's interesting. I love that. Yeah, that's really interesting. (laughs) I guess my next question is, we had an autopsy tech join us and walk us through her job and what she does. Where do you come in? Are you starting the autopsies or are you taking over once the tech has completed the autopsy? What does your day-to-day look like?
2: doing forensic autopsies or hospital autopsies? Do you mind if I want to distinguish between them? Yeah, of course.
0: She doesn't work in a hospital. She works through like a coroner through the county, which I didn't even realize there was a difference. What's Is is a hospital autopsy just not as
2: invasive? It's not that it's, it's not an invasive difference. It's they're, they're pretty much the same thing in terms of what you do to the body. But the difference between a hospital autopsy and a coroner's autopsy is in a hospital setting, you're doing the autopsy to answer questions, usually for the family or the doctors who took care of the person who died. So there really isn't a question about why they died. If we don't know why they died, then they have to be referred to the coroner or the medical examiner. But in a hospital setting, usually we know why the person died. They usually have multiple medical problems. They came in for some sort of disease process and they had treatment and then the treatment did not work and they died and they passed away. So then the questions that get raised are, well, why didn't the treatment work or uh, h- how extensive was the cancer that they had? We know they had cancer, but we want to know, did it spread to all the organs or did the chemotherapy work? So these kind of questions, these are medical questions. They're not legal questions. Nobody's trying to sue anybody, and there isn't any criminal component, but we do have medical questions that can only be answered by an autopsy, and that's where a hospital pathologist would perform that. Um, They would not have the specialized training of a forensic pathologist. They're still qualified to do an autopsy, but it's to focus specifically on medical questions. When a coroner or medical examiner takes jurisdiction, the death is sudden, violent, or unexpected. So the death often happens at home. Or it happens on the street, or the person's not identified. We don't even know who they are. Those are the circumstances under which a case would be referred to the coroner. And even if someone dies at the hospital, but the doctors at the hospital don't know why they died, if they are confused and don't know what to write on the death certificate, those cases also get referred to the medical examiner or coroner to do a forensic autopsy. Because it could be that they died because they got the wrong medication at the hospital, or it could be that they died because of something on tour that happened to them, and they made it to the hospital, but they died in the emergency room, and the doctors didn't have a chance to really figure out what was going on. Any sudden death or quick death or death within usually 24 hours of admission to the hospital usually gets referred to the coroner or medical examiner. Um, so that's, that's where that system kind of kicks in. So to answer your question about the tech, what happens is the decision about whether or not to perform an autopsy in the United States is usually made by the pathologist working for the coroner. So what happens is is my typical day is I'll come in in the morning, I'll look at the cases of the people who have died. Usually there's some file folders on my desk and the summaries of what happened to the people who are in the refrigerator. We have refrigerated storage for the dead bodies, and they will have been brought in over the past 24 hours from the day before by investigators who go out. So the investigators may be medical examiners investigators, or they might be sheriff's deputies if I'm working for a coroner's office, for instance. And those investigators will go out to the field and pick up the dead body, talk to the people who last saw them alive, write a little summary about what happened to them, in the 24 hours or so before their death, like the circumstances of death. And then they'll bring the body back to the cooler and they'll be refrigerated overnight. And the next morning I come in, I read those reports and then I can decide whether or not they need a full autopsy. In some cases, people are elderly. It's, you know, just because they died at home, doesn't, the case was brought into the coroner's office because they died at home and they didn't die in the hospital. But they have no natural disease. Their own doctor was not surprised that they died. We have documentation from their medical records about the circumstances of death. So sometimes we could just do an external examination of the body and we don't have to actually do a full autopsy. And other times we really don't know why they died. We need to do the autopsy to figure it out in which case I will go into the morgue, I will be gowned up and wear personal protective equipment, and then working alongside the technician, the autopsy tech, we will do the autopsy together. So where I work, the tech does not do the autopsy unsupervised. Um, you have to be in the room with them, you can watch them, or you could actually be doing the incisions yourself while they're assisting, I meaning that they're uh, taking photographs, writing things on the dry erase board, or packaging up evidence, so it's really the role of the tech is very different in some areas versus other. It depends on how experienced they are and what the comfort level is of the individual doctor working with them.
1: Okay, so you work for the county, or or how does that work? If you're a pathologist, is it hospital and county? Are those the only two settings that a pathologist
2: would be in? Forensic pathologist, I mean. Yeah, it depends. So a forensic pathologist usually works in some facility for so for a county, because death investigation in the United States is on a county-by-county county level. I'm actually in New Zealand right now. <laughs> so I'm oh, wow. Working <laughs> as a contractor, and you, there are other models. So one of the models is that you can work as a contractor. Before I came to New Zealand, I was working in Alameda County, which is Oakland, and in the Bay Area in California. And I was working as a contractor to the sheriff's coroner. So I worked for the sheriff's corner, and I would be paid per autopsy. So depending on how many autopsies I did, I got more money. Um, And that was the contract type situation. Prior to that, I worked at a medical examiner's office in San Francisco for nine years. And there I was a salaried employee. So I was an employee of the city and county of San Francisco. And now I'm paid a salary as a contractor working for a company called Communio that is contracted through the Ministry of Justice in New Zealand to provide forensic services in the Wellington area. And I'm the only forensic pathologist here. That's incredible. Yeah, I'm the only one. Uh, There is another pathologist who just started the suite. Yeah, so I'm the only forensic pathologist. Now, why
1: is that that they don't have, there's only you and one other person? Is that...
2: (laughs) This, This is why I'm talking to you. We need more people in this field. So I don't think you realize, like, how incredibly problematic it is for us to get enough staffing anywhere in the world. So it's not just in the United States or in New Zealand. It's all over the world. So let me give you an example. Um, uh, A few years ago, when I first started on social media, I actually set up a Google alert for the term forensic pathologist and medical examiner, and I would get daily emails from Google alerting me to things in the news that use those terms, right? So in the news report comes yeah. up that uses the phrase forensic pathologist or medical examiner, I get a little Google alert. And it was astounding um, how many places in the world are really understaffed with regards to my specialty. There are not enough. First of all, there are not enough pathologists in the world to do all the pathology that needs to be done. But even more so because we're a subspecialty of pathologists, there are not enough forensic pathologists to do all the legal autopsies that need to be done. And this is a problem all over the world. It's not just in the United States. So that's why I was recruited to come here. They just didn't have enough, and they needed somebody. Yeah, why why do you think that is? There's lots of different reasons. The primary reason has to do with the amount of training that it takes to get to be a forensic pathologist. So at the minimum, minimum, you need to do um, in the United States four years of college. So for your undergraduate degree, then you got to get into medical school, which is a high bar because you need good grades, right? And you need to take ed Then you do four years of school. During that time, while you're in medical school, you may not even be exposed to pathology very much. The curriculum's changed a lot in the past 10 years. Uh, they're primarily focusing on primary care to get people to be general practitioners and primary care docs. So subspecialties like pathology and forensic pathology, don't get students don't get that much exposure to them unless they specifically notice to seek them out. And so then you go through, you so still four years college, four years medical school, then at the minimum, you need to do three years in the United States of anatomic pathology training, and then another minimum one year of forensic pathology training. So even if you just went straight through, you'd be about 29, 30 years old before you actually had your first yeah. job <laughs> where you're working independently and not being supervised. That's the option. Wow, that is a lot of training. I had no clue. And a lot of debt, too. I mean, if you look at the cost of medical school education nowadays, yeah. people are getting into you know 300000 half a million dollars of debt before they've even finished their education. And then how do you pay that off in a specialty where you're working for a government entity and you're not going to be paid as much? as someone who works in private practice. So if, for example, you finished your three years of pathology and you went to practice just surgical pathology, looking at specimens that come out of surgery, you can make on average about a $100,000 a year more than if you took an extra year of training to become a forensic pathologist. And that's for the rest of your career. So you make wow. more money with just the three years of training that you've had than with that extra year of forensic pathology, where now you're working for a government entity. And as you know, government uh, doesn't pay as well as the private sector.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I am actually really shocked by that because I would never have thought that there would be a like shortage of forensic pathologists and, or pathologists for that matter too. But that's wild to me. That's crazy. I had no clue. That's why I'm I'm on
2: social media. (laughs) I started on TikTok recently to try to tell young students, you know, people who are teenagers who are thinking about career options, about this career path, because I figured, well, that's where the youths are. So let me talk to them about what I do, because I can at least put it on their radar.
1: My son's school, he just started middle school, and they have, I thought it was so cool, in the library they had a section for um, forensics. And so it was a oh. whole section on forensic books and um, all different types of jobs within forensics. And I'm like, that is so cool. I wish there was something like that when I was a kid growing up because, I mean, I would have loved it. I mean, my career path is completely different than, <laughs> than that. I, when I told my son, I'm like, you if they have classes, you're signing up because that would be so awesome. <laughs> So, I, and I heard, and I don't know if this is true.
2: Yeah, TJ and I, my, TJ is my husband and co author, and, and he's a writer, and we've written three books together on forensic science. And we actually get asked pretty frequently to come speak to student groups, both in high schools uh, and colleges um, of different types of undergraduate curriculum involve forensic science. So, we'll speak to them. Uh, via zoom nice. we, because of where we are right now yeah uh, but we do that in order to promote the forensic sciences and all through the field
1: that's so awesome yeah mariah and i i don't know if she told you but we have a lot of middle schoolers that listen to our podcast for whatever reason that is <laughs> but i like it's it wonderful. because i feel like <laughs> right because i feel like it's you know you don't know what you're going to be that's why we started this podcast too You know, educate people on these different jobs, and not necessarily the crimes, but more about the jobs and what the jobs entail.
2: Oh, that's wonderful! I mean, I think it's really important to encourage students to think about different career paths, especially ones that are going to give them something to look forward to, like real meaning in life. I mean, that's that's what I love about my job. I love the fact that I get a thrill every single day going into work because I'm always going to learn something new. I'm always going to be challenged and I'm going to help people <laughs> and, and getting, you know, totally getting that feeling that you can really help people with their grief, help people with understanding what's going on, help the legal system move along <laughs> and, and function properly. It's a, it's a really rewarding feeling. It's a feeling like you've made a difference in the world.
1: A hundred percent. Cause that's gotta be for families. I would think that, you know, I mean, everyone's, you think of when you're old, you pass away and you just pass away in your sleep. But if you are young or even if you are old and there's some sort of like question behind it, or you just don't know why that is a answer mm-hmm. that I would need as a family member, me personally, cause I would need, I need answers and I wouldn't be able to like, right. I would obviously have to move on, but I would be bothered by it, you know? So that's, that's
2: nice that you can give that to
1: those families.
2: You know, I got to tell you a story since you've got some students in middle school <laughs> listening to you. Um, a while back, I went through my files, you know, that I had at the house and I found some old report cards and grading assessments from when I was, I'm not getting in elementary school and middle school. And I believe it was my third grade teacher, Rabbi Camlet, who made some sort of comment on my report card, you know, a written comment about how Judy doesn't like open-ended questions. You know, some questions don't have answers, and she gets very frustrated when there is no answer. (laughs) I looked at this thing from when I was in third grade, and I realized, well, that's the sign that I was meant to be a forensic pathologist. I (laughs) just don't like not having an answer. That's (laughs) funny. Realized that that was my strength at that point, (laughs) not a critique or a
1: weakness. <laughs> that's funny. Have you had cases where you can't get an answer or usually every case you get some sort of answer? So even when we can't get an answer,
2: that's also an answer. <laughs> and <Okay. laughs> the the reason for that is because the autopsy itself learned that over the years that it's okay to not be able to get the answer and that's really because it's a function of the limitation of the autopsy itself. An autopsy looks at the anatomy so I can only look at the structure. I can't see the function. And Let me give you an example. So there are plenty of people walking around in the world right now who have a condition called Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome or Bugatta syndrome, where their heart doesn't beat properly. There's a problem with the channels that move in and out of the cells, and they don't have normal heart rhythm. And as long as they're alive and walking around, we can measure those abnormal heart rhythms. We can actually measure the electrical patterns in the heart. And we all know what that looks like. It's that squiggly line that goes like up and down. That's at the beginning of the, the TV show ER, you know, that goes up yeah. and down. That's <laughs> that measurement of the electrical activity in the heart. And when the electricity doesn't work properly, you can see abnormalities in that electrical pattern. But the heart only conducts electricity when it's alive. As soon as someone dies, their, their heart's no longer beating. There's no electricity going through those muscle fibers. And so... I can't see that after they're dead. Unless they have something structurally abnormal about their heart, I can comment on the structure. And sometimes that's an indication that the function was also not working. But when it's just a functional abnormality, I'm going to miss it at autopsy. I would have to have had an EKG from when they were still alive. Same thing with a seizure disorder. if a person has epilepsy or a seizure disorder, unless there's something structurally abnormal about their brain, which in the majority of cases of people who have epilepsy, there isn't. It's an electrical problem. It's the way the electricity is going through the nerves of the brain. And you can only see that when. a if- alive, you can't see that after they're dead. So when I do an autopsy and I can't find anything and I do find the answer I would say close to 99% of the time. So it's really like the 1% of cases, right? The ones where I can't find it, it's usually because it's not a structural problem, it's a functional problem. And then I usually write in my report that that's the limitation of the autopsy. The other thing to consider is bodies if they're not fresh, (laughs) will start to decompose. So after several days, you know, bacteria will start to digest the body and there will be fungi and the body's own cells start to break down. So with decomposition and skeletonization, the organs are mush or they're gone and I can't see them anymore either. So again, that kind of 1% that are undetermined also fall into the category of the body is too decomposed for me to make an assessment.
1: And is when it comes to that, how would you rule that just as like, is that like called inconclusive? I don't know the rule, like the terminology, but is it just, you just kind of think you know what it is, but you're not really
2: sure? Well, the circumstances help us figure out the manner of death. So that manner of death is a classification system where we figure out whether the death is natural, a result of disease or aging, or whether it falls under some sort of traumatic category like suicide. Homicide or accident. But there's also an option for undetermined manner of death when we don't know how to classify it well. And then for cause of death, cause of death is a disease or an injury. So, like I said, 99% of the time I'm going to be able to figure out the cause, and maybe 1% of the time I won't be able to, and then the cause of death would be undetermined. And usually, when the cause of death is undetermined, the manner of death is also undetermined. But there is a subset of cases where I can figure out the cause meaning, for example, a person has blunt trauma and they have a bleeding on the brain called a subdural, but I can't figure out the manner, meaning I don't know how they got the subdural. They're just found dead in their house with the subdural, and I don't know whether somebody pushed them or whether they tripped and fell, or I don't have any information about the circumstances of how they got the subdural because they're just found dead and nobody witnessed or saw anything. And so then I will have the cause of death as blunt trauma of head with subteral hemorrhage. That would be a cause. But then the manner would be undetermined. And I would say undetermined is usually as a manner or a little bit more common than the 1% of the undetermined cause. I would say less than 5%. So in the 4 to 5% range, the manner is undetermined.
1: Okay. So, yeah, that would still drive me crazy, personally, if, you know, you get yeah. one out of the two. But, I mean... Yeah. Yeah, but there would be things because, yeah. Luckily, luckily it's infrequent. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So then you can't be annoyed all the time.
0: (laughs) Right. When the bodies come in and you're going to get started and you're going to do the autopsy, are there, like, a standard set of tests that you run on everybody or based on the body? Because you always hear, like, oh, the body tells the story. The body's going to tell us. (laughs) Like, so... Did the tests change, or I guess I'm just trying to understand the process. Like, if somebody came in, looks like they were stabbed, we're not sure. How do you approach it?
2: So, the way I approach things depends on what that report says from the death investigator who went out to the scene. The whole process starts okay. from the initial death investigation, That is not conducted by myself, it's conducted by a trained medical legal death investigator. And they will go out to the scene and they will get at least the initial information that helps set me in the right direction. Now, all autopsies have very, very common basic features. So if you watched, you know, a thousand autopsies, you'd see that most of them are pretty much the same. We start Mm -hmm. the Y incision, we take out the organs, we weigh them, we measure them. But the decision of where the details are, (laughs) the devil's in the details, right? Yeah. So based on what, the, what we find in the autopsy might decide what more we're going to do. So if I have a case where it's suspicious and a person looks like they're, they've got some injury on their body, but I don't quite know how to characterize that injury, I will treat it as a suspicious case. We would have the police take photographs or we would take a lot more extensive photographs. We'd be collecting evidence up front because we're concerned about that case. And then as we perform the autopsy, we might discover that that injury is just superficial and doesn't go deep into the organs and probably had nothing to do with the death. Maybe the person was feeling really sick and had a heart attack and was stumbling around the house or maybe they were really drunk and they were stumbling around and they got these injuries and the injuries were just superficial. They didn't cause the death, but they were. An art, a consequence of the person dying, getting injured in the process of dying. In which case, then we'll, you know, we've packaged, we've treated it like a suspicious case. We've packaged up all the evidence, but now that we've discovered that it's actually a heart attack or an intoxication, we won't do anything with that evidence. We're not going to like move forward and arrest anybody. Like I, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't tell the I tell the police. I think this is a natural death. I don't think there's anything more to do. And then the evidence just gets either returned to the family or thrown away depending on what it is if it's personal property it gets returned to the family if it's uh you know fingernail scrapings we might just throw it away but if the case then becomes suspicious then we would keep all that and pursue it so it depends on what we find at the autopsy and that helps guide us to decide okay, okay i need to do additional testing because i didn't find a cause of the autopsy couldn't find anything else like everything looked healthy every normal sure so then i know okay well i need to do more testing right I need to send the blood out for toxicology to see if there's any drugs in their system. I need to take little pieces of tissue to put under the microscope to see maybe there's a a diagnosis that I can pick up under the microscope that I didn't see with the naked eye. So everything is, you know, it's kind of decision tree. (laughs) You make that the next decision based on what information you were given and what you found at the autopsy.
0: What's the longest that maybe you're combing through a body to get your answer could it take weeks like what's the longest it takes i guess
2: so a typical autopsy takes about an hour we're talking about like an average like a heart attack or an overdose or a suicidal hanging something simple would take about an hour i would say it takes me about 10 or 15 minutes to review the outside of the body and then about 45 minutes to take out all the organs and um Send my specimens off. But the case doesn't end when I do the autopsy. So that one hour, I'm not ready to finish it right there. I need to wait until I get my laboratory results back. So typically it'll take about two weeks for me to get my microscopic slides back from the lab. It'll take about two weeks to a month for me to get the toxicology results back from the lab because those get sent off and then have to be processed in a laboratory setting. And then it'll take me another hour. To review my transcript, you know, first I have to dictate it. I have to review my transcript. Got mm-hmm. to look at all the information. Sometimes I read medical records, and so I have to kind of get back to it and remind myself what is this case about that I haven't looked at yeah. for a month, um, and then finish my report. Uh, but since your question was how long could it take, the longest autopsy uh, are the longest ones tend to be homicides because we're collecting evidence. Okay, we have a lot of photographs that need to be taken and. If there are complicated bullet paths or a lot of trauma on the body, it could even take several days. So a typical homicide I'll do in about three, four hours. It'll be my only case for the day. I won't do anything else. And then the longest one I've ever done was an officer-involved shooting case that was about 10 or 15 hours over the course of three days just because there were a lot of intersecting bullet paths and we had to recover the bullets.
0: And then just to clarify, like you said, in the homicide with the police officer, the body, could it potentially sit with you for a month before the family could have it back? Or at what point can the body be released back to
2: the families? In most cases, we release the body back to the family within about 24 hours of the autopsy. Oh, okay. The autopsy is finished, then we release it back to the family. Uh, We try to release the body as quickly as possible. But there are some cases that a body might need to be held for a longer period of time, especially if it's, let's say, skeletonized or decomposed remains. And we need to bring in an anthropologist so that then they need to examine the bones. So we may not return a body to a family for quite some time, especially if the person needs to be identified. For instance, we're not even sure who they are. So we could be holding bodies sometimes for months, plural, if we don't even know who to return it to or who they are. It really depends on the case.
0: One that I know you touched upon in your book, um, but I just think it's like such a, an interesting thing. And I definitely feel like as a mom, I could potentially behave this way. But how often do you have people reject your findings because maybe they didn't want to believe their child was a drug addict or that they committed suicide? Do you get a lot of people protesting what you classify their death as?
2: It hasn't happened that often. Um, first of all, a lot of times I won't even know because they might just not it and not tell anybody or just complain to the coroner and it won't get back to me um when it gets back to me it's infrequent but usually we have a long conversation about it and sometimes I change my mind I mean I have been in situations where I made a determination and then the family called me back and gave me additional information that I just didn't know about at the time that I signed the case out like I thought that the person was uh chronic substance abuser and that this was an accident. And then the family called me up and said, Hey, they left the suicide. Now, didn't you know about that? And I'm like, no. <laughs> so let let me tell me more. And so we've changed it, you know, accidents to suicides, suicides to accidents, depending on the additional information that we got. It may or may not change our opinion. It, you you have to keep an open mind. I mean you gotta remember these things are written on paper. They're not written in stone. I have no vested interest in <laughs> sticking to my guns when yeah. the evidence supports something different. There, there are a lot of times that pathologists may change their minds. I believe most recently in the news was the Elijah McLean case, the original pathologist, changed his determination of what it was. And that was just in the press just past week.
0: Do you ever have pushback from law enforcement? Do you ever have challenges where they're very confident that this happened this way based on what they've seen at the scene and your analysis doesn't support that?
2: I have had some conflict with law enforcement in the past, but it has to do with the fact that they've gotten conflicting information from people at the scene about what, and then I'm telling them that's not what the body's telling me. It creates more work for them. (laughs) You know, if they've got an eyewitness who says it happened this way and then the physical injury on the body does not match up with the eyewitness saw, it puts them in a bind. Is the person lying? Maybe they are are confused. Maybe they saw it from a different angle and it looks different. Uh, Maybe they were drunk or under the influence when they saw it. So it does create more work for them. (laughs) If I'm telling them that what they think it is, isn't what they think it is. Uh, But then the burden is on them to try to reconcile that. And ultimately the burden is that of the jury. If, if there's, Conflicting information being presented to a jury, the jury has to make sense of it. Usually I try in my role when I testify as an expert witness to try to resolve some of these issues up front by looking at all of the evidence and all of the witness statements and the body to see if I made a mistake, for instance, or if somebody else made a mistake. Sometimes you can figure things out. I mean, I've had situations, I had a case where I testified in several years ago where an eyewitness claimed that a shooting happened a certain way, but in looking at the physical evidence of the body, it completely was the opposite of what she said. It didn't match up with what she was saying. and She was the star witness for the prosecution, and I ended up getting hired by the defense attorney to explain that her testimony didn't match up the injuries on the body. And furthermore, it turned out that she was standing right by a window, which was very well lit, while the body was in an area that was not well lit. So, I also had to explain why her vision may have been affected by the fact that she's in a well lit area looking past the light into a dark area, a place that's not well lit. So, she her vision would not would be affected by that from a from a physiologic standpoint, a medical standpoint. You're as you know, every time you walk in to a really dark room from a brightly lit area. You can't see anything. It takes a few seconds for your eyes to adjust. Yeah, yeah.
1: Now, I would assume that the body doesn't lie, right? Like, it, it, mm-hmm. its story isn't lying or changing. So isn't it most of the time, like, it's kind of cut and dry or not even really once you
2: have concrete evidence, if it's a case like that? It really, case by case. You know, the body doesn't lie, but it doesn't tell you the entire story either. You need sometimes the context in order to interpret the injury on the body.
0: One thing that I wanted to, to circle back on that I think it's an interesting concept that I know we didn't touch on is like, how do you determine a time of death? Is that
2: tricky? Time of death is, I call it the, um, time of death is the holy grail of forensic pathology. Because it's really, really hard to get accurate, and it's really hard to really pin down. Um, there are lots of different modes to try to figure out time of death. All of them have problems, and many of them are dependent on the temperature. But if you know the temperature, you should be able to pin it down to some level of accuracy unless the body is massively decomposed. So there are two separate intervals for time of death. There's the immediate post-mortem interval within the first 24 to 48 hours where a body transitions from being warm to cooling down to the ambient temperature, assuming that the ambient temperature is actually cooler than the body. And stiffening happens, which is rigor mortis, and the pooling of blood from gravity happens, that's called liver mortis. And you can use those three things, uh, lividity, liver mortis. Uh, rigidity, rigor mortis, and the ambient temperature compared to the body temperature to narrow down the post-mortem interval in that immediate like 48-hour period, so to speak. But then after that, once decomposition starts to set in, then there are other parameters like bacteria that grow in the body, that's the microbiome, and which bacteria are active or whether insects come to eat on the body like flies or other scavengers. Those can also help you figure in the time of death, depending on where the body is. Like, is it indoors or outdoors? Is it um, in a basement, a cold basement, or is it up in the attic where it's really warm? So that that can help you narrow things down. And again, it's really case specific. I would love, love, love to be able to work with some company out there (laughs) to help develop some sort of device to help us figure out time of death more accurately. Because right now a lot of places don't even bother to take body temperature because they think it's so inaccurate. Oh, wow.
0: So, Judy, having been in this field for so long, I know you're a mom and you see a lot of different things. How do you separate and kind of guard yourself from not taking your, your work home? Obviously, you write books with your husband, so you guys talk about it all the time. How do you safeguard your mental self, especially if you have a case that, you know, wasn't cut and dry and you're still trying to figure out what the cause or the manner is, how do you not just pace your kitchen floor trying to figure it out?
2: (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, I mean, let's talk a little bit about Working Stiff. That's the book TJ and I wrote about my training at the New York City Medical Examiner's Office. Yeah. In writing the book, the way it started off was it was a journal. It was a diary. So I have to say that during my training every day i would write in my journal and the journaling process actually helped me process some of what i was experiencing so i've got to say there's a certain amount of therapy in the process of writing itself in it
0: yeah and then
2: there is and then and then there's the support i get from my husband when we work together and he gets to hear those stories and ask me questions and that helps me process them And then there's also the support that I get from my colleagues, because a lot of these cases, I can't discuss them in real time with Mm -hmm. my family members, because they're private information or they're cases that are works in progress. They have confidentiality associated with them. I can discuss them after the fact when they're adjudicated or whatever. But when they're actually happening, in many cases, the only people I could speak to are the other people involved in the case. So that would be the police officers the technologists in my office, and uh, my colleagues, the other forensic pathologists or pathologists I'm working with. So that's where we support each other, and we create a safe, supportive environment where we can tap out if we need to, or take a break, or cover for one another, because we've all been through it, and we know how difficult some of our work can be. I definitely have been there for my colleagues over the years. And I know that they'll be there for me when I need it.
0: Yeah. I feel like, and this is, I guess as a mom, and every time we do these episodes and we talk to a fellow mom, I'm always like, how do you not let it bleed over into your parenting? Because I feel like I would be so fearful to let my kids go out into the world just because you see some of the most horrific things. Although I will say, I feel like you also have a special little card in your pocket to be like, hey, I've actually seen somebody die from doing that, so you're not going to do that right now. So I feel like it could kind of work in your favor. It, it
2: does work in my favor, and it also gives me a certain joie de vivre, I got to say, this joy of life. Because when you see what the horrible things are that happen to people every day, and you see the loss every day, it is what we call a memento mori. It's a reminder of death. And you come home and you hug your kids and you sniff them and you are so happy to see them every single day. You value your life and you value the fact that you just woke up this morning. It's amazing. Yeah. So I find that all of us who work in death care, whether it's in the funeral industry or in hospice or in, you know, Monk, end of life care, palliative care. We all really appreciate life and are actually very sunny, happy people <laughs> um, compared to most <laughs> other doctors, which is a really interesting thing. I think I think that constant reminder of death makes you appreciate what you have. With regards to parenting, it also makes me a much more practical parent. I'm very much of a free range parent. My kids have given a lot more freedom. Uh, than most of my friends' kids, they tend to be a lot more neurotic and scared of things that really are not that scary. Um, The things I'm scared of are not things that people think about that often. And sometimes they're things that people are doing and they don't even realize that they're dangerous. So, for example, sharing a bed with a newborn baby is a really dangerous thing that a lot of people do. And it ends up with accidental overlays and smotherings. So all of my kids, even though they were breastfed, had a bassinet. They were still in the same room with us, but they had a a safe sleep space because I knew about the dangers of infant death when bed sharing. So you could still co-sleep, but you don't have to bed share. And it's the dangers of an adult bed that, that absolutely terrify me for an infant usually in the first 3 4 months of life but it can happen even later where small children can get entrapped by things like curtain blinds you know those little strings that hang up from hang down from the blind this is a known safety hazard that if you have a crib or a child's bed that's next to a curtain blind with the string hanging down that they can accidentally get tangled in it and end up dying from that and horrific to me but it's something that people don't even think about. It's a routine thing in their house that they don't even realize is a hazard. And yet I'm neurotic about that. Um, it's, you know, when my friend's houses, when they had infants, I would say, Hey, t- tie this thing up. <laughs> um, I yeah. go in there and be looking for, looking for the safety hazards for small children. The other one is with a toddler, do not let them run around with food in their mouth. When they eat, they have to sit down because they choke. And especially if they've got like a hot dog or fruit, and they're running around and, you know, eating and running with the food in their mouth, that's when you're setting yourself up for a choking situation. And that's that's not even if it's survivable, it's really scary, and you don't want to have to deal with it. So for my kids, when between, you know, the ages, when they started eating solid food, to when they were basically, um, past middle school, I was like, you're not walking around and eating, you sit down to eat." choking hazard because, you know, when they're that preschool, elementary school age, they're not paying attention. They take a bite and they start running. And that's when, that's when accidents happen. Um, so again, it's not something that a lot of people would think about. They give their kids food and the kids run around and they don't think about it. I think about that (laughs) and I'm not going to risk that for my kids.
0: One of my last questions was, is there a case that you've worked that has stuck with you that kind of maybe changed your outlook on your life or your own
2: mortality or the world? Gosh, I mean, I think every case touches you to some degree. The The ones that I find the most challenging or the most interesting are the ones where people die at the hospital and even the doctors at the hospital can't figure it out why they died. And so those tend to be the ones that, at least for me, are more intellectually challenging whether they change me, I, I don't, I, I don't know if I can really answer that. Um, okay. Like I said, every single case touches you in a certain way. And, and so it wouldn't really be fair to any disease because they all, they all impact you. They all make you, you, you learn something from every single one and you feel a special connection to their family when you reach out to them and you talk to them.
0: I mean, really what you said, I think is just the most meaningful and impactful thing because one of the things I did after I read your book is I bought this collection mm-hmm. of photographs from this photographer in Europe and he got the behind the scenes access to various hospitals and photographed the morgues. And I remember telling Nikki about the pictures cause they're, they're pretty graphic mm-hmm. I would say. And I said, Oh my gosh, I just can't imagine being a naked person on one of those tables, just like waiting to be autopsied, you know? And so to hear you, humanize it well you well,
2: wouldn't be aware of it yes you're not
0: going to be aware I feel like I'm going to be floating above myself Judy just like staring down and being like Well, you should have got a wax the other day and you put it off you know like um but I think
2: what you well, said well that makes me feel any better though autopsy is the no judgment zone we don't judge this well,
0: that that does make me feel so much better absolutely absolutely it does because I'm like oh gosh um but no, I think how you just humanize it though, and you learn something from every person that you interact with, and whether it's maybe you know emotional or scientific or however you want to classify it, at least that makes me feel better. That you know, if you autopsy me, it's it's, it's going to be a good thing. It's not going to be awful. <laughs> no, I
2: mean that's, I think the way that that's the way I can deal with it. To be honest, because I found taking care of patients in the hospital when they were conscious and in pain, was so much more stressful on me. And I had a much harder time with boundaries and not thinking about them when I came home than I do with students. Like, when a person is dead, they're dead. Like, their body is separate from who they were as a human being. They're just like a shell. And so I think of their spirit. I mean, the way I deal with it is I think of their spirit as being with their family and being with the people who, who they love and who love them. And their spirit's not hanging around the corpse. The corpse is there, is just there for me to try to figure out and dissect so that I can give answers to their family. And it's really that, that to help their spirit have some sort of, and have their family have some sort of, of understanding in their grief. So that's how I process it. That's how I frame it to make it, I guess, more, Palatable and understandable, and and give meaning to what I
0: did. Yeah, that makes sense. I do have a question, just as like a curious person. If someone was interested in getting into the field, or you know, debating going a step further in their career, is there opportunities to shadow in your department? Can someone get their feet wet before they decide to jump all the way in? So, yes, and the
2: answer is yes and no. So it's. It depends on where you are in your training and your educational journey and where you are professionally in your career. So, for instance, if you are young, you're a student, you're still in school, then I would encourage you to look at my blog. I have a blog where I have frequently asked questions, but if you just Google FAQ3, I want to be a forensic pathologist or for students interested in forensic pathology, it should come up as the number one Google search for that because the FAQ three is the frequently asked question and that should come up and that has a step by step uh, direction on how to become a forensic pathologist at any level of uh, training that you're in. I love that. Hey, that's great. So if you're in high school, this is what you should do. If you're in college, this is what you should do. If you're in medical school, this is what you should do. And I have it kind of stepped out by that way. Right? But let's say you're in your mid-40s and you've had a career in doing something else and you said, oh, I was meant to work in death investigation or in forensics. How can I get into this field? Kind of depends on what education and training you already have that you could bring to the field. So let's say you have worked in um, in cosmetology and you do cosmetics. Well, guess what? Funeral homes need people to put makeup on deceased so that they look good for funeral homes. Yeah, our ways to work within the realm using the skill set that you have. Let's say you worked in administration or finance. Well, medical examiner's offices need financial directors and need administrative personnel to answer phones and help interact with families. So you can get into the field using whatever skill set or experience you've already had. And so there are lots of realms with forensics that may need your skill set. It's just a question of where your interest lies and whether you want to do additional training in your studies.
0: I love that. I just, because, you know, our middle school fans, I love to, you know, let them know the way to, to get there, to see it. That's great. Nikki, let's just do a couple of our fun questions and then we
1: can let Judy get on with her, her Saturday morning. Sure. What is one of your hobbies besides writing books?
2: (laughs) Besides writing books, I like to draw and sketch and paint, Uh, especially when I'm on vacation. I will take a little sketchbook with me and sit on the beach and draw the waves or the kids playing or whatever. I I really like drawing. Um, And that's been a hobby my entire life. That's awesome. It's very artistic. I also like like baking. I I make really good and strudel. I have a strudel recipe on TikTok if you want to check it out.
1: Ooh, yeah. I, I'm the baker. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. You could have like pathology pathology in the kitchen. <laughs> could be like yes, baking. that's your next book, Judy. Like a whole book of
2: recipes. <laughs> we actually have a joke which we refer to as um, this is going to be our television show. Sharon did a television show to be called Forensic Fridge. And that's when when something dies in the fridge that you have to figure out what it is.
0: I love that. What is something that you hoard that you would be embarrassed to admit or maybe not embarrassed?
2: Oh, I I could tell you what I, I, it's not so much hoarding, it's collecting. Okay. Um, I collect uh, forensic themed clothing and jewelry. Really? Earrings that are shaped like skulls. Yeah. People have commented on my TikTok about that because I have little skull-shaped earrings. Um, I have a shirt that's got like a death certificate on it. This is
0: this one's going to tell us your true personality type. But when you're going to load the dishwasher, do you rinse your dishes off before they go into the dishwasher, or do they just go straight
2: in? It depends. Okay. Actually, what we do is we give them to the dog. To, we give them to the dog to live <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. That so the, the dog like so as long as they're safe for dogs, like the food is not something that he would be allergic to, that would be unhealthy for him, like onions. But uh, we, we let him lick the place first and then they do in the dishwasher.
0: Well, Judy, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with us and answering our questions and giving us the opportunity to speak with you. Um, you definitely made like the little girl and me so happy, <laughs> and it was so fun. Oh, yeah thank you um, so I really appreciate and, it
2: yeah I, I I really encourage people to go into the field of love and say you guys are doing what you're doing to make people look at death in a positive life I've always been uh, part of the death positive movement in that regard because I, I think that it, it, it actually helps us appreciate life more it's a really positive thing it's not a negative thing
0: well thank you again and enjoy the rest of your day take care right, bye bye
1: Okay, so what did you think? Because I know how I feel. I thought it was really interesting. Well, I definitely want to finish her book now because I find that to be really an interesting job. I don't, it would be hard though.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, I'm always like so surprised how kind and like gentle the people are and how they're so, um, How they so can easily set down their curiosity. Can do it. You know what I mean? Like, I would be racking my brain over and over and over and over and over. And, like, I missed something. I missed something. I had to miss something. You know, but I think when she, like, said, you know, sometimes no answer is the answer, that would take me decades to accept as just a person. Like, I don't even accept that. No,
1: yeah, I don't like that either because it just – I need – I need an ending to a story. I even hate movies that have one of those, like, you know, you come up with your own ending. Oh, yes. Where it's like, you not you come up with like, what do you think I hate? I hate <laughs> that. Just tell
0: me. I invested
1: two hours uh-huh. in the
0: journey. Yeah. You finish me and off. And if it's
1: not a good ending either, I'm also annoyed. Like, I don't like that either.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess too, it's, I, and I wish that I had better understood kind of the pathology. That there was like a pathologist and a forensic pathologist, and that there were individuals that worked in a hospital versus the morgue, like I didn't even know that they had pathologists in the hospital. I just thought everybody got ushered out to a morgue,
1: yeah, I thought that I thought so too, like to the corner, and then they do it there,
0: yeah, yeah, so i w- I wish that I hadn't known that when we had talked to Jessica, um, cause I mean, I know she Ugh. works with the coroner's office, but it just would have helped, I think framed it up a little bit differently. But, um, yeah, so it's like interesting because I just didn't realize there was like, uh, a hard, a hard difference.
1: Yeah. And I think it's crazy that there's like, it's not an in demand job blows my mind. I mean, it makes sense though, for all the reasons that she said,
0: it's an insane amount of school. And with that comes an insane amount of debt. And then you work for the state where you make, or the County where you make pennies, peanuts, you know? And it's, it's kind of like the the thing where it's always like, is it worth it? Is it worth my time and my money to go and do this? And unfortunately I feel like that's so sad because this is an extremely important job And it provides obviously the ability to solve crimes. It provides families um, peace to like understand what actually happened to their loved ones. So it's like, it's incredibly important and rewarding as she said. Um, So it's kind of sad that there aren't more people in it. I mean, I 100%, I'll sign up for it right now. When I come back around in my next life, I will be a pathologist, (laughs) 100%. It wasn't something that I even knew existed at a point in my life where I was making decisions on what I would go to school for and I wish I had known.
1: Right? Yeah. So you have a little more like knowledge of it and then back then, we didn't even have internet to like No, and Google there weren't really TV
0: shows like these forensic no. shows. I mean, these forensic forensic shows are really like opening up a whole world to people that they didn't know existed and I find that so cool. And I I wish that had been around just because of like my affinity for science and my love of like these, you know, what happened and this and that, like, I wish that I had been able to somehow tap in more to like forensic jobs.
1: Yeah. But then if you can't solve it, then you're annoyed. I mean, yeah, that's the only problem. That's the only downfall
0: that I mean, that will drive me crazy. It drives me crazy now. That's why I can't listen to podcasts. Um, where they cover cases that are not solved because I oh, will sit tough. over, like I was t- telling Will the other day, I was like, oh, I, was, I listened to this case about this girl and I was like, oh, I just, I don't understand where Brittany is and like, what happened, like, where, why didn't anyone? And he's just like, what are you stressed out about? And I was like, I just spent <laughs> an hour in this podcast and yeah. now I'm racking my brain as to what they missed. Yeah, exactly. it stresses me out. Judy exceeded every expectation of the person that I thought that she was. She is Okay, good. So lovely and so kind and so smart and funny and I just enjoy her so much and I'm just so appreciative that she agreed to come on the show and I really do encourage everyone to go get her book. It is one of my top my probably I would say top 5 books in this realm that I've ever read just because it was so interesting and the cases that she talks about are so cool
1: no I'm I'm glad your experience was um all that you wished for I mean it was great I'm so happy it was great I caught the
0: whale and I feel good (laughs) now we just have to get your whale
1: I know they're out there
0: they're out there and then we'll have to find a new whale so you know
1: exactly again it's a vicious cycle now what exactly yeah
0: (laughs) Oh, that was lovely though. So, thanks right. for thanks for joining me on
1: my fangirl episode. Oh, I love it anytime. Perfect. I'll 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 go with you on this journey. <laughs> Thank you. I'm
0: glad. I'm glad to have you aboard. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at body to burial
1: If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to.
2: Thanks so much, guys. See you next time.